Well, actually, how we left off in chapter one, for a little bit of review, was, remember, Paul was sharing how we need to simply glory in the Lord. That's how he ended chapter one with that quotation from Jeremiah, how we need to boast in the Lord, glory in the Lord alone. Because remember the church of Corinth, well, they were beginning to rally around different people. They were highlighting different people and they were boasting in themselves based on who they were tied to and aligned with. And so there were disputes and divisions that were going on in the church and they were getting away from the focus being on Jesus. It was getting on to other people and divisions were being created. And so Paul has been looking to come in and say, man, we are missing the boat if we're not simply glorying in Jesus and making it all about Jesus. So here in chapter two, Paul continues to uh, remind us how we wanna just shine the light on Jesus and keep everything about him. That's why he says here in verse one of chapter two, and I, Brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to the testimony of God, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was Paul's whole uh, agenda and motive when he came into Corinth is he was not looking to come in. And remember, Corinth was this melting pot of cultures and different people, people that were all about philosophy and human wisdom and spouting off of their own intellectualism. Paul could have come in and, and sought to try to debate with the best of them, but Paul says, man, you know what? I didn't come with that purpose, that mindset, that agenda. I came simply for one purpose, and that was to make Jesus known and to preach the message of the cross. Barclay says that, that Corinth put a premium on the veneer of false rhetoric and thin thinking. Like I said, Paul could have easily debated with the best of them, but if Paul began to conduct himself in that way, what would have happened? Well, people would have been looking at him and start to elevate him and go, wow, look at this wonder kid. Look at how great he is. And they would have put more emphasis on the messenger rather than the message. Or they would have, they would have been more impressed with the messenger rather than with the message. And it's a temptation, I think, for many people that are in this position of, uh, of preaching and, and, and teaching in church to where, you know, it's so easy to begin to think, oh man, I gotta really, I gotta really shine today. I gotta really put a lot of time in this and focus and, and, and really, I wanna, I wanna look good, I wanna be impressive. And we can begin to think, I gotta really shine. And, and we're missing it if that begins to be the focus because when I'm up here, I, I do not want to shine. I just simply want to see Jesus shining and I want to see him seen. I want to disappear that Jesus might all the more be seen in, in what we do. There was a church that had a beautiful stained glass at the back of their stage, a stained glass window, a picture of Jesus on a cross. However, the pastor of the church was a rather large guy and where he stood at the pulpit, it kind of blocked everybody's view of seeing this beautiful stained glass window of Jesus on the cross. Well, one day they had a guest speaker come in. He was a rather small guy. And this little girl was sitting in a pew and leaned over to her mom and said, where's the guy that usually blocks us from seeing Jesus? And sadly, that's what can go on a lot of times in churches is that there's a lot of great things being said and a lot of things that can make us go, oh, that preacher was oh so good today. Oh, that preacher was so on fire. Wow. 
Really? What, what did he say? Well, I can't, I mean, I can't really remember. I don't really know, but it was just really good. And it's sad if our, our view going away from church is, oh, that preacher was so good, rather than going to church saying, man, Jesus really ministered to me. The word of God really became clear to me. That's my goal and my desire up here is simply to shine the light on Jesus and his word. And Paul is saying the same thing here. I didn't, I didn't determine to know anything among you. I didn't want to come in with, with my wisdom, with my intellect, with my abilities. I want to come and just simply make Jesus Christ known and him crucified. Paul, Paul wanted to be sure that, that, that what he did simply shine light on Jesus. He says in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17, if you've got your Bibles open, just go over to chapter 1, verse 17. Because Paul reiterated this when he said, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Paul, you see, is understanding that it's all about the cross. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what he has done for us. He didn't want to get into debates or trade in eloquent exercises with the people of Corinth. He just wanted the message of Jesus to be shared and the power of the cross to be central. That's the reality of Jesus that we have, that he died on a cross, he rose again. It's this that is the good news. Amen? I mean, this is the good news. This is the, the, the gospel that has the power to change lives. This is why Paul says, man, I could have come with lots of fanciful stories. I could have come and really been impressive to you, but that would not have changed your life. That would have not made any difference in you and in your walk with the Lord. But when I preach the gospel and I make it all about Jesus, that has the power now to change lives and to make a difference. Paul says here in verse three, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching, uh, they weren't with wise or persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. The demonstration of the spirit and of power. You know, it's kind of weird to think of Paul confessing that this was the way that he came into Corinth. Because I I think we can all look at, at Paul and be like, oh man, this guy, he's a strong guy. This guy's powerful, not just intellectually in the, in the educational upbringing he has, what he had, but just a bold guy, not gonna back down from anything. This guy had power, you would think, but yet he comes into Corinth and he's saying the exact opposite. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He's, he's shaking in his boots as he's sitting in Corinth seeking to share the gospel. Why would that be the case? Well, perhaps he felt like this would be another city where, you know, Preaching the gospel would land him in a world of hurt as he's experienced other places that he's visited when people were like, you know what, man, we're, we're done with you. We don't want to hear any more about this Jesus and the cross or about our sin. I mean, there were times where people are picking up stones to stone and being left for dead. Paul perhaps is coming to Corinth again, this, this original sin city, right? This city of carnality where he's thinking, these guys surely are not going to be receptive of the message that I'm bringing them about Jesus. They are for sure gonna be against me, and man, this is not gonna go well. Paul comes to Corinth, and he's shaking in his boots. Remember what the Lord came and revealed to him in a vision by night in Acts chapter 18, where we see the context of Paul ministering in Corinth. It says there in Acts 18 verse nine that the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision, and he says, do not be afraid, 
but speak and do not keep silent for I'm with you and no one will attack you to hurt you for I have many people in this city. The Lord had to come and minister to Paul because Paul was so gripped with fear and terror over what might come of him. That's what the Lord has to say. Don't be afraid. Just speak. No one's going to attack you to hurt you. I have many people in the city. Paul is finding out that he's not all alone here. And even if he was the only one that believed, he still got the Lord on his side. And when you got the Lord on your side, then you're on the winning side. You don't have to fear what might be against you because greater is he that's in you than, than he that's in the world. And so Paul is being reminded, I don't need to fear. God's with him. No one's going to hurt him. Just speak. Just speak the good news. Just speak the message of Jesus Christ to the people because it's that message that's going to change lives because it has the power working in it through the Spirit of God that's going to come and transform lives. It's the only thing worth sharing and speaking, you see. There's a story told of Dr. Harry Ironside, the great preacher who was sharing his testimony in a church one day and and during that service, an, an agnostic was there and he stood up and he challenged Dr. Ironside to a debate over which was, you know, the better philosophy of life, agnosticism or, or Christianity. Dr. Harry Ironside accepted the challenge of the debate under two conditions. First, he said, you must go and bring a man with you that the world would commonly call a down and outer not particular as to the exact nature of those sins, whatever it might be, whether he was a drunk or a criminal of some sort or a victim of some sensual appetite. Ironside said he must be, however, a man who for years was under the power of some evil habits from which he could not deliver himself, but on some occasion attended this gentleman, this agnostics meetings where this man was spouting off about the glories and the wonders of agnosticism. And this man had given in to that and sided with that and seen that this has just changed his life and made his life better and freed him from all the, the sin and the, the grip of this world. Secondly, bring a woman with you in the same sense that has come into one of your meetings and has heard this hope of, of agnosticism that it can bring, where she's been delivered from the slavery of sin. She's followed this teaching then until she became an intelligent agnostic. And as a result, her whole being revolted against the degradation of the life that she'd been living. She fled from the infamous place where she had been captive so long and today she's rehabilitated. She's won her way back to an honored position in society and is living a clean virtuous happy life all because she is now an agnostic he says bring two people like that and i will bring with me a hundred people that have been gloriously saved through the saving power of the gospel of jesus christ and the agnostic just kind of waved his hand in rejection and walked away knowing that that would be a very tall order for him because agnosticism when you turn away from god there's no place to be found that's going to add, enrich, or help your life. You're leaving everything behind that is absolutely the power in your life to cause you to be made new, transformed, and to be walking in the blessings that the Lord has for you. Paul says in verse 5, he goes, again, in context, I, I didn't want to preach anything to except Jesus Christ and the cross. So that in verse 5, your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. See, it's so important that we don't try to 
win people based on gimmicks and entertainment or human wisdom. Because if a person is saved by the wisdom of man, then his faith will rest on man's wisdom. And it becomes a shallow faith. It ultimately becomes a false faith because it's not based on the things of God that he's done for you. Again, it's the power of God that draws people in and changes lives. It's the spirit of God working in a person that's gonna draw them in and change lives and transform them. It goes beyond an intellectual appeal and it appeals to the very heart and brings about a transformation that only the power of God can do. Nothing in this world can ever afford that for you. Nothing in this world can ever bring you into a better life, a richer life, a, 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 a more joyful, peaceful life that's only found in and through Jesus Christ. The power of God is, is also looking to the very means by which God would, would bring a savior into the world where he would cause his son to be placed on a cross to die and to rise again that he might bring about the forgiveness of sin. It was the antithesis of wise to those who are in the world to see what God would do and to look at this and go, how is that the power of God? That he would deliver up his son to die? The world looks at that and they go, they go that's not wise. But yet we understand it was the greatest thing that's ever been done so that we could be spared and so that we could be offered life now today. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. To those of us who are being saved, who understand what God has done, it is the very power of God. The world looks at it and goes, that's crazy. That's foolishness. That doesn't make sense that one person would die that God would give up his son. And yet, we understand that by one righteous man, the whole world can receive salvation through faith in that finished work of the cross. That's wisdom. And Paul begins to talk about the, the reality, the realness of this wisdom when he says in verse six, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory. Verse eight, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So again, for some, this talk of the cross, the power of God, like Paul's been building a case for, the world goes, that's foolishness, that's crazy. But Paul reiterates that those who preach the cross are actually the ones that are walking in real wisdom and speaking wisdom. I mean, you might have family members or that circle of friends that aren't believers and they look at you and they go, man, what has happened to you? You've like joined a cult. You are just like way out there. You have lost your mind following this Christian. They look at what you're doing today, coming together, sitting all bunched together like you are, singing songs together, sharing spit flying through the air. And they're all like, you guys are a bunch of whack jobs. That's how the world looks at you. They're like, what's happened to you? You've, you've lost all sense of wisdom. That's how the world sees it. But, but what Paul is saying is this. Uh, see, actually, we're the ones that have really gained wisdom. We're the ones that have really now seen the greatness of the wisdom of God. And we're truly the wise ones now 
for putting our faith in Jesus, living for him, worshiping him as we do. Paul wants those who see Christianity and the cross as foolish to realize that we are actually making a lot of sense. And we're making a lot of sense to those who are also mature. Now, who's the mature that Paul speaks about here? Well, some believe that the mature are those that have attained to a certain you know, level of, uh, of faith in the Lord and, and they've grown in their understanding of God as opposed to those who are still kind of babes in Christ. We're gonna talk about babes in Christ, those that are carnal Christians in chapter three, but I don't believe that's who Paul has in mind here. I believe what Paul has in mind in the context that we're looking at is that those that are mature are simply those that are saved, those that have put their faith in Jesus as opposed to those who have not believed in Jesus Christ. So the mature are those that are saved as opposed to the unbelievers of the world. This wisdom that is shared then among the mature or among the believers is not a wisdom that's recognized by the world or unbelievers. In fact, Paul says that all the wisdom and rulers of this age, those that, have, that seem to have it all together and will even at times mock and scoff the faith that you hold on to, Paul says they're what? They're coming to nothing. That's what he says there at the end of verse six, that the wisdom of this age nor the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. I kind of like that. Don't ever feel like you're lacking or falling short in intellectualism or wisdom. Don't ever hide this idea that, well, I put my faith in Jesus, where people go, you've done what? Why would you do that? Don't be like, well, I, do, I don't know. I just kind of grew up in this. I'm just like, man, just be bold and be able to say, I'm walking in the real wisdom here. Amen. However, what you're holding on to, I'm sorry to say, it's gonna all blow up in your face one day. It's gonna come to nothing. What you think is giving you hope or joy, you're gonna find that it's gonna lead to nothing. Everyone will see one day that they've missed out when everything they've aspired to comes to nothing. When you have Jesus, you've attained to the greatest wisdom. You've attained to the greatest life that you can live. It's found in Jesus. This wisdom, Paul says, in verse seven, we speak the wisdom of God in, in a mystery. In a mystery. Paul loved that word mystery, which is a mystery to all of us, isn't it? It's like, why does he keep using this word? For those of you that haven't been in our previous studies where we talked about this, that word mystery is not something that Paul uses to describe something that you have to figure out now. It's a mystery, so just keep trying to solve it, crack the, the riddle or find the, the clue. This is not something you need to try to figure out. When he uses that term mystery, he's speaking of something that was once hidden in Old Testament times, but now has been revealed in New Testament times and more so revealed in and through Christ. And so those that are in Christ, now all this that was once hidden has now been made plain and clear to you you begin to see that what God had planned, because look at the Old Testament. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They had their hope in this, in this Son of God coming, but they didn't understand how the Messiah was gonna come, that he would come and be delivered up and die. That was a mystery to them. So that when that was actually happening, they're all like, this can't be the Messiah. No way is our, our deliverer that's gonna overthrow Roman bondage and set us free and, and restore the throne to Israel again. No way can that deliverer actually die. This didn't make sense to them. It was a mystery. But we who have put our faith in Christ, we know, ah, he had to come the first time 
to set up that throne in our hearts and cause us to be brought into life in and through Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sin. And he's coming again the second time to restore the kingdom and to establish all that, that he's gonna do in this world. And so it was a mystery at one time, but now it's been revealed to us through Jesus. We, we, we begin to see and understand now this perfect plan of God and what he's done to accomplish all of that. This mystery is glorious and it's oftentimes the way that God works. Sandy Adams says, God's wisdom is a mystery to man's mind. It's strength through weakness. It's wisdom through foolishness. Life through death. Victory through defeat has never been a theme of man's wisdom. The paradox of the cross is illogical to man. It's a mystery hidden from man's mind that mankind knew nothing of God's wisdom became apparent the day the Jewish scholars called out for Jesus' blood and ordered his execution. And that's perhaps who Paul has in mind when he talks about the rulers of this age here. When, when he says in verse eight, none of the rulers of this age knew these things. It could be speaking about the Roman authorities or the Jewish religious leaders that were pushing for Jesus to be executed. They didn't have any clue as to what the real plan of God was. They thought they were pushing their agenda but we're in fact accomplishing God's agenda. Or more, more importantly, God was accomplishing his agenda through them. And, and it could be that the rulers of the age are in reference to the principalities and the powers of the air, the, the, the forces of Satan. Satan himself is referred to as the ruler of this world by Jesus in John chapter 12. You see, Satan, I believe, had full knowledge that God had planned to send a savior into the world to save mankind. That's been uh, Satan's plan throughout history was to thwart this, this plan. This is no mystery to Satan. But Satan thought if he could thwart that plan and take out the Messiah, well, then he would win. And Satan thought that he'd won a great victory that day that Jesus was put on the cross thinking, ah, I've done it. I've, I've, I've prevented God's plan from moving forward. But much to his chagrin, Jesus was the one standing in victory that day. See, this would not have been the route that Satan would have taken if he understood God's plan. If this mystery of how God would accomplish salvation was truly made known to him. It was a mystery even to the rulers of this age how God would do that. And you see, that brings much comfort to me because there are times where I can feel like Satan is gaining a victory. Where you can go, why does he seem like Satan's having his way here? Yet God is patiently saying to us, just hold tight because it's all gonna blow up in his face. It's all gonna come to nothing. It's all going to crumble because God is in control and he's the one that's working out his plans and he's doing so for his glory. Amen? Isn't that good to know? And not only is he accomplishing these things for his glory, what does Paul say there? He says at the end of verse seven that God ordained before the ages for whose glory? Our glory. Your glory, my glory, what? How does that work? How is that so? God was doing all this so that we could be saved, so that we could be delivered out of death into life, out of darkness into light, so that we could experience now life in him and that we could experience now the beautiful presence of God and have that hope of heaven. Peter would write in 1 Peter 1, verse 20, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead 
and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. In other words, through the work of Jesus on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins and eternal life. He is our hope of glory. Paul would say in Colossians 1.27, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that verse. See, in Old Testament times, they would never have fathomed that God would do a work where we would actually be able to say, God is dwelling in me. They've all experienced throughout the Old Testament worshiping God from a distance, God dwelling in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the temple, worshiping God from a distance. Oh man, if we could just draw closer to God, but they were in fear of God. Now, in New Testament times through Christ, it's Christ actually dwelling in you, who is our hope of glory. We have something so great to look forward to, not only enjoying the presence of God and being in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but we know that one day we're gonna see him face to face and we're gonna be in the very glory of God. This was done and accomplished, not just for his glory, but for us to participate in that glory as well. Hallelujah for that. God is good. And let me tell you, the world just doesn't understand that. The world doesn't comprehend that. They're, they're, they're looking at all these things going, man, this doesn't make sense to me. Just a bunch of foolishness. It's weird. And, and so Paul says here in verse nine, it says, but as it is written, eyes not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now we love to quote this verse in, you know, a celebration of life or a funeral service as a way of saying, oh, just wait, because heaven is gonna be glorious. Heaven's gonna be grand. No, nobody can even comprehend the things that God has prepared for us. And though that is true, that's not what Paul has in mind here in the context of what we're looking at. Paul's not addressing heaven and what to look forward to. He's addressing those that have not yielded to God, that have, have kept him back and said, man, I don't get it. That doesn't sound wise. It doesn't, it doesn't seem right. It's foolishness. Paul is addressing to say, you're missing out because you have not understood really what God has in store for you, what he has in store for those that will yield their life to him, surrender to him, and, and put their faith in Jesus. You will begin to see at that time the glories, the greatness, the wonders that God has always had prepared for those that are in Christ. You can't imagine. The, the world looks on and they're like, nah, I don't know. I think I'm doing okay. I think I'm, I'm doing okay here in my guilt and shame and you know drunkenness or whatever it might be. I, I, I'm managing okay. They're failing to see that when you surrender to Jesus, suddenly you are made new. All things have passed away. You're no longer under condemnation of sin. You've experienced the grace of God by which you've been forgiven and granted new life. You're walking in peace. You're walking in joy. You're walking in, in the, the blessed life that God has for you. Nobody has understood that until they yield to Jesus and experience that. So Paul is trying to say to this church here, to those that are in the world looking on to all these things, But you see, it's a different story for us who are in Christ because Paul says here in verse 10, but God has revealed them to us. We're those who are in the know. When the world says, oh, you guys are a bunch of weirdos and unwise, Paul says, no, we speak wisdom and we're those that have been 
given this revelation through his spirit of the greatness and the grandeur of God and the, the greatness of life in him. God has revealed them to us through his spirit for the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God, verse 11, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. See, guys, we don't have to be left out in the dark any longer. We don't have to walk around in a spiritual stupor as though we don't know what's really going on or what God's up to. Some Christians sadly do. But Paul says, listen, God's revealed them to you through his spirit. When you give your life to him, you are now, the spirit is dwelling in you. There's to be a difference, you see. There's to be a different outlook. There's to be a wisdom that is about you now. You don't give up wisdom, you gain wisdom. The truth and the wisdom of God has been shown to us and it's the spirit that continues to illuminate that truth to us now as believers in Jesus. And it's truth that's unattainable through our own human wisdom. Don't, don't try to figure these things out by your own ability. Rely upon the spirit. Let the spirit illuminate these things. I pray often for that when I'm just having my own devotions. Lord, lead me today in understanding of your word through your spirit reveal these things to me because i don't receive that through my own natural mind or eyes i need the spirit and it's and it's a wonderful thing to see a person that was once again walking in darkness where they might have tried to pick up the bible in the past and they're reading it and they're like man i do not get this one bit it's like reading a foreign language to me and when they finally yield and surrender to jesus and they're made new in the spirit dwelling them suddenly they read the bible and they're like oh my goodness how did i miss this before and they haven't like slept in a week because they're just devouring the word they go this is so rich this is so good i can't get enough of this they're eating it up because it's suddenly the spirit illuminating these truth to them you know it don't you guys you're like yep amen i've, I've been there we know it it's exciting to see these things. Paul says, verse 11, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? See, it's the spirit of man who really comprehends the things of man. Because, you see, I can go ahead and do something that looks really great, but you don't know my motive behind it. Am I doing that self-serving? Am, am I doing that because I'm, I'm, you know, really just wanting to serve? You don't know the motive behind what I do. No one knows except the spirit within the man knows what the reason, the agenda behind it. And it's the same way, or in the same way, it's the Spirit of God who ultimately knows the things of God. We can try and fathom God. We can act as though we haven't figured out, but it's only through the Spirit that we can truly, really know Him. Do you know Him today? Are you in Christ and the Spirit dwelling in you to continue to lead you in that truth and revelation and knowledge of God. Verse 12, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might indeed know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but with the, which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. So Paul says, you don't have to continue being led along by the, the spirit of the world that doesn't get you anywhere. No, we have the spirit who's from God that we might know these things that have been given to us freely by God, that we might walk in this newness of life and in the enjoyment of life in and through Jesus Christ. Press in to that wisdom that the spirit brings you. 
Press into those things. Don't be content with just kind of a little nibble here and there. Just devour it like a full course meal where you just feast on the blessings and the knowledge of God that begins to be imparted to you through the Spirit dwelling in you. If indeed the Spirit is dwelling in you. If you truly surrendered yourself to the Lord and been born again. Verse 13, McDonald says, is one of the strongest passages in the Word of God on the subject of verbal inspiration. The Apostle Paul clearly states that in conveying these truths to us, the apostles did not use words of their own choosing or words dictated by man's wisdom. Rather, they used the very words which the Holy Spirit taught them to use. And so we believe that the actual words of Scripture, as found in the original autographs, were the very words of God, and that the Bible in its present form is entirely trustworthy. That's what Paul says, that, that we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. We're speaking those things, and then he says in, in, at the end of, of verse 13 that we compare spiritual things with spiritual. Compare spiritual things with spiritual? That sounds kind of confusing, doesn't it? What is, he, what is he talking about? What is he getting at there? Comparing spiritual, isn't that the same thing? Well, that's kind of a, a poorly translated word there to say comparing things because the original Greek, what that word rightly is defined as, is, is combining. So it says we're combining spiritual things with spiritual. So we take the spiritual things of God and we speak them through the spiritual words of the Spirit now. Again, tying in that, that divine inspiration of God's word. They speak spiritual words through the Spirit to reveal those spiritual things. Paul says in verse 14, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is speaking to those that are unbelievers. They, they've, they've not surrendered their life to Jesus. No, no person can be saved unless they're born again. It means to be born of the Spirit. There's a, a transformation that takes place. That's what Paul's getting at. The natural man doesn't get these things. He doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. That's why we need to pray for people that aren't, aren't saved, that, that the Lord continues to work in their hearts and illuminate the truth, that, that they will respond to the, the leading of the Spirit and suddenly have the Spirit bring light to these things, to where they'll respond. And when they respond in faith, then the Spirit is now dwelling in them, and suddenly all these things begin to be seen through a, a new light for them with understanding in truth. Keep praying for those people that don't know the Lord. It's, it's not, God's not relying upon your ability and, and your strategy in delivering the gospel to them. Yes, we need to share the gospel, the good news with people. But don't think that because a person didn't surrender and give life to the Lord that you did something wrong. That's in, something the Spirit needs to do. And we pray for that. We continue to share the good news and we trust that the Lord will eventually remove the blinders from them. But, verse 15, he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Again, that word judge, we like that word as Christians. We think, all right, I get to now judge one another. I don't like what you're wearing. You need to change that. I don't like your attitude. You need to fix that. I don't like that show that you're watching. That's wrong. You're going to hell. You got to make that right. You know, and, and we like to judge. That's not what Paul's talking about. It doesn't mean, well, I'm a Christian, so I have the entitlement now to judge you. That's not what we're dealing with. In fact, that word judge, it's the same Greek word that Paul used for discerned in verse 14. So what Paul is saying is, 
we who are spiritual discern all things. We know, we understand the things that are going on around us. We have the Spirit in us, guiding us, and we're able now to discern all things. We have the ability to see that which is right and wrong, that which pleases God and that which doesn't. We no longer need to fall prey to the, the vices of this world. Yet, he himself is rightly judged by no one. This doesn't mean that the spiritual man is above correction. Paul is all about correction in the letter of 1 Corinthians as he goes through these things with the church there. Rather, this is speaking of how a natural man cannot judge a spiritual man because he doesn't understand him. He knows not spiritual things, thus is unable to judge spiritual people. When the world is looking at you going, man, you have lost the plot. You have just given up all wisdom to follow this blind faith. We go, no. You have no ability to really judge those things because you're still in darkness. You're, you're not in the spirit. You can't judge those things. Paul quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 13, in verse 16, when he says, who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? See, it's important for us to know we don't ultimately have anything to offer God in doing things better or more right. We can't sit there and go, God, I, I, I kind of like what you're doing there, but may I just offer a suggestion to you? Maybe you might want to try doing it this way. That would really work out better for me. I like that system a bit better. That's going to be more helpful for me, God. So maybe give that a try and see if you like it. It might work out better for you, right? Like we, we, who are we to judge those things or to instruct the Lord? But notice what Paul says. But we have the mind of Christ. We're in Christ now. We have a different outlook, a different view. We don't have to look at the things that God does and go, why, God, are you doing that? I don't get, we have the mind of Christ to where we go, oh, I can, I can now in faith understand that what God is doing is always good. He's accomplishing his purposes. Though I may not understand or, or know exactly how this is all gonna work out, I now have the mind of Christ where I can say, I know that this is gonna work out good because everything God does is good. He's a faithful God. And I, and I believe and trust that all these things are going to work for the good to those that love God and are called according to His purposes. We have the mind of Christ that can look at things now with a right view. Not a view to be critical or judge or go, whoa, that doesn't seem wise, God. Oh no, the mind of Christ. Everything you do, God, is wise. We can now think God's thoughts. We can have His values, His desires, his heart in these things. Let us be those that walk in that mind of Christ. Worship team, would you come? And we're gonna close with a song. And this is kind of where Paul is, is taking the church here at Corinth and where he's, I believe, leading all of us as we go through the book of Corinthians is that we have that mind of Christ because the church of Corinth has gotten very far away from that mind of Christ. They've been relying upon worldly wisdom, human wisdom, not the wisdom of God, not operating in the, in the mind of Christ. They've been disputing, they've been dividing. This church was struggling to walk in that wisdom of God. We don't have to fall prey to those things any longer. The things that the, that the world demonstrates. We don't have to look at the work of God as though it's foolishness. We can discern that all that he does is good and right. When we walk in that mind of Christ, may we continue on in that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your good word here today, God, for 
the wisdom of God that we see at work, the wisdom of God by which you've come and saved us, delivered us from sin and into life, forgiveness of sin, we're blessed, Lord. We're thankful. And though the world might look on and mock that, God, we know that we speak that which is truly wise and good because it's of you. May we continue to have the mind of Christ and the spirit of God working in us and leading us, Lord. All for your glory, we pray in your name, amen. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this has been just uh, uh, shooting over your heads and you're like, I'm not getting any of this. Maybe you're watching online and you know you're not right with God. I wanna encourage you today to call it to Jesus because in his wisdom, he sent his son into this world to die on a cross to forgive you of your sin. We all are guilty of sin and stand separated from God because of that. He sent his son into the world to die on a cross to save us forgive us of our sin, and to lead us into newness of life, life in the spirit, and life eternal. That doesn't come about by you being a good person or doing good things. That comes about by putting your faith in the one that is good, Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross. Receive him today if you have not done that. Get yourself right with God, because you never know when you'll have your last breath. And when you breathe your last breath, you run out of chances. Today's the day to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior if you haven't already. Turn to him. Pray a simple prayer, Lord. I confess I'm a sinner. Forgive me my sin. Come in and be my Lord and my Savior. Make me new. I want to live for you and I want you to live in me. Pray that prayer. And if you prayed that for the first time, come and share with us. We'd love to share more with you. I'll be available in the front afterwards. Come and talk to me. Or if you're online, email the church. We'd love to send some things to you to help you in this newness of life in Christ. All right, don't pass this chance up.